0: Welcome to the Out of the Woods podcast, the top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to our weekly edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Foley here with Lee Arkenau
1: how's it going everyone thanks for joining us
0: and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies so with that let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of november 27th 2023 so the first article i wanted to bring up it was kind of interesting because one i thought it was a pretty good attack techniques that they were leveraging but it was From the Hacker News, and what they were talking about was the new HRServe.dll web shell detected in in the APT attack targeting an Afghan government. And um, some of the interesting uh, bits of information that really stood out was one is the use of PA exec, which I actually uh, dug up another article uh, later about that but it's similar to PS exec as far as how to run things. So it basically created a service that runs a bat file that causes the execution of the malicious payload to be pushed into memory and then deletes itself. Um, and, you know, that's something common where I've seen uh, services in general, where that will be the technique to get whatever executed. Um, and then the service gets you know, pushed out, especially when things are just being loaded into memory and that's the purpose. So I'll just delete the the service. So any kind of behavior, I feel like that is that kind of create a service and then, you know, they have to name the service and then you see a deletion of the service removed after that. Um, that, that is, uh, uh something that's worth looking into. And in this case, what was really interesting as well is even uh, one step further. They also deleted the payloads associated to the service so there's nothing actually on disk to look at um, after the fact so for instance you know this is uh interesting an attack from a perspective of once you load things in memory you're assuming whatever you're attacking isn't going to be rebooted because you would lose your foothold but second you're deleting hard files off the disk so if someone did learn of say indicators of compromise that you would not be able to necessarily go look for those live now. If you were, you know, storing, you know, hashes and things like that, historically, you could potentially look back that way. Um, but in a lot of cases, you don't get hashes um, for say bad files. It's usually more like executable base files. So um, that I thought was really interesting. And then the other artifact that kind of stood out as something to look for um, within this attack was they did a lot of read write things um, where they were kind of moving um data uh to operate the malware essentially and they use a registry key for one of that where they de- you know write a wrote some decoded values into the registry path. It was in the local machine hive under software Microsoft identity store remote file. That was the the key they targeted to kind of move decoded payload uh, pieces. Um and the other thing that I thought was also interesting was they actually tried to make a call out to some attribution and it's interesting because you know it's the Afghan government so you try to think of like well who is not friends you know in those scenarios. And um uh, they noticed that there is some git parameters uh that were used in the hrserv.dll file um and they included the hl. So that is usually in a git parameter is associated with the host language. Um, and this parameter had no functionality within the attack vector, but um, it, but that would mean that the value uh, specifies that the Google search interface should be displayed in English, but the results should be displayed in traditional Chinese. Um, so that also was uh, something they called out as an interesting, you know, who may be you know, associated with this. And, you know, China is really good right now at a lot of the web shell attack. Um, type capability so that that is another antidote that i kind of just brought to it from just things i've been seeing um but but yeah so just kind of interesting thing to to look at and you know a pattern of behavior that you know even though this seems like a very sophisticated way to like hide everything but keep that foothold um there are definitely things you could be looking for from a behavior perspective uh with especially the service creation deletion um activity that's relatively quick um that highlights some of these findings what do you think
1: so this is a great article uh, by the list, uh, by Chris Percy as well. And from a threat perspective, uh, you know when I'm reading through here, of course we're trying to ignore the indicators of compromise, simply because they are so um, their shelf life is very short. Um, but really, what we're looking for is the the technique, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are used by the adversary. Uh, so whenever I hear a scheduled task being created, uh, you know the first thing I think about is how does my tool track that? Is it a uh, EDR that has its own like service or a scheduled task or service created event type? Or do I have a SIM that is ingesting windows event logs? So am I looking for, you know, the four, six, nine, eight scheduled task created event ID, but either way um going through this, you know, you, it's important to have this visibility first of all, um, because if, This is a common technique that's used, it's a common tactic, um, and it can be used for persistence, execution, you name it. There's multiple ways to use it. But if you are gathering this data, uh, and like you mentioned, the quick create, execute, delete, and then deletion of files that were supported, um, it's just, you need that visibility to confirm that, hey, you know, we saw this, um, not only do we see it happen, but we can point to where it came, or where it came from, what happened afterwards, because once again, it's not just about you know third time is not just about um, saying here's what happened. It's talking about all the other events that are related, how they're related, and so on. Um, but specifically around here, they used a task name named Microsoft's update with an S, so it was micro- it was a Microsoft update. There's a Microsofts, so a trying to blend into to uh, the service names that exist already or something that looks legitimate, um, don't take that for granted. You always want to take a look at the details, um, and, and really an easy win here, too, is looking at uh, scheduled tasks that are created to run at the system level. Um, and not, so not only the system level, because that might be something that exists in your environment, that is um, more normal than some environments, depending on where you are. But if you think about, okay, so it's running a system. It was just created. Who created it? Can I verify that activity in my environment? Can I get a good thumbs up from our engineers? Or is this something that is completely no one's tracking? Um, and if that's the case, you know that that's really concerning. But looking at the details, you see a BAT file targeting a DLL file running on system, um, it, it's things like that that you want to look out for Not, not that it's an easy win. Um, I'm not saying that this was something that could have been easily picked up, but if you're looking at that data, if you're looking at scheduled tasks being created, there are things that kind of stick, um, and of course. You know, if they are running at system level, that gives the adversaries uh, privilege escalation. Um, so they're giving them elevated privileges, and now they're able to do things that maybe they weren't in the beginning. But since they ran that, you know, it, it's a little um, a little more concerning, right? It's not just it's not just um, creating a schedule test.
0: Yeah, I do like that you were calling out, you know, the details because one of the things that I think that usually stands out as well is just looking where the files are located that are supposed to be run. Cause you know, services are supposed to be legitimate, either host specific or, you know, software specific that you installed, which usually falls in only certain key directories. So you see services being run from, you know, public shared folders or publicly available non-administrative folders uh, that aren't system specific. Those do kind of just stand out on their own.
1: Or give me the good old app data local temp. Right. <laughs> or downloads, right? Like immediately you see that happening. You're like, well, yeah. yeah. Um, if you've been around for a while, you, you know that's probably not legitimate. Um, but if you are starting your journey, uh, take it from us. That's that's not legitimate normally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. What do you got? So uh first up was a article by group i b um now I really enjoy these articles um, I, do too. I I would have loved them uh when I was an up and coming analyst um but I definitely enjoy them now because it's it kind of matches up with our mission of trying to make threat hunting easier for more people um by sharing our knowledge and you know not so much keeping it close to our chest and, you know, hey, try and figure it out. We're, they, they're kind of in the same boat where they're publishing these articles and they're telling us, um, not, not only are they going over an attack or, in this case, a miter attack technique, um, but they're saying, here's how we did it. Um, here's how, or here's the things that we ran into that kind of caused a hiccup. Uh, for example, uh, they started their original query, um, they ran it, now in this case, we're sorry. We're looking for abuse of Windows services. So as I started going through it, they said, "Yeah, well, we start out with a process creation um, type search um, with the parent payload being uh, services.exe." Um, so right then and there, they're just and this is this is how I like to approach mine um, or my hunts is I like to cast a wide net first. Um, first of all, the idea is to get as much data as you can back. Um, then not, not to be overwhelmed by it, but simply to verify that there is this data in your environment. First of all, uh, you don't want to get too specific where you're searching for something very, very, um, unique to your, to an environment. Um, because, you know, if that activity doesn't exist in your environment, then, then you don't have it. Right. Um. But the idea is yes, wide Ynet, see if you're getting any activity in your environment first, and then from there, get more and more specific, um, which is what they did. Um, so they, they went and did a search where they found um, a bunch of results, and they said, well, this was causing a problem, so the next thing we had to do was um, take a look at the results. And the easiest way, or one of the easier ways, is to look at the bottom hitters. Um, now, I don't know what tool they're using, um it might be a
0: yeah. Well, I, I think I, it's uh, what they sell, right? I think they have their own like ER type thing.
1: Oh, perfect. And that makes sense. Um, but in like Splunk or CrowdStrike, uh Defender, there are ways to use like commands to look at that quickly. But what they did was they um they went to the bottom. They just went to the, the least amount of hitters. Like so what is happening rarely, right? Um mm-hmm. at least if it does exist in your environment and it's normal, it should be ongoing. But then they, you know, then they added an inclusion to their, uh, or an including statement to their query. So now they weren't just looking for, um, process create. Now they're looking for a loading executable code in the process. Whereas the event type, the parent or the payload image file name contains DLL and the, uh, image file name contains SPC host. So now they're getting more and more specific. Now they're looking for more things, but it's just, it's just a great explanation of going through these steps. Uh, If you weren't, or if you're not familiar with it, or you're not used to a SIM, or using those types of tools, this is a great article to just read about and learn the strategy, Um, because then they talk about including statements and exclusion statements, which are things that you need to know about and things that you may need to add um, whenever you do create your query, because there are gonna be times where you may need to um, tune things out or, you know, find out what's normal in your environment. But that's really the hardest part is finding out what's normal in your environment first. Um, Sorry for the long no. minute answer, but th- I, I really do enjoy these. And they have more than one. So I, I would recommend going back. Uh, or if you want to see more, there's always uh, more to go back on.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought this article up. Um, Because one thing it really highlights is threat hunting is a process. And that's why automating some things or just buying a tool that does threat hunting specifically isn't really the solution for all threat hunting. And, you know, there's times where we create, you know, a hunt looking for a specific technique that's going to interact with, you know, specific parts of the system or something like that. And to me, that's cool because you identified a really good fingerprint, um, similar to almost like an IOC, but it's not IOC specific. Uh, You can go find things on. But what I like about these types of hunts where they're looking at a technique, they're saying, hey, you know, system services, service execution, that's something that they know exists in their environment today. And they know attackers use them because one, they can blend in, but two, it's another way to get things done. But you have to understand a process for how do we start with, you know, this is a technique that's common. But we know in the results, there's services that are just created, right? So they expect there to be noise, but they have their process for how to handle that and approach that. And they do a really good job spelling that out. And the other thing I really liked is, you know, they, in their, their images, when they're doing the rarity, right? They're sorting from the most common, same things to the least. You know, they're kind of ruling out a bunch of the high number ones, and that's obvious. and then they get more specific and what i liked was the one they called out that was suspicious yeah, it had one hit right and it was the acrobat updater instead of acrobat <laughs> um, and but there were hits below that that were also a one hit but the big distinction and this is what when people you know ask like what does it take to be a threat hunter it's just that common understanding of systems in your environment and that's where experience is just just comes into play when you've looked at things long enough, things are obvious. And the ones that had single hits below that were all services running from the system 32 or the Microsoft.net directories, um, which are normal directories for this behavior to exist because they don't know if they really called that out specifically other than like, Hey, look, this looks obviously suspicious based on the name of, of the executable. Yeah. The name stood out, but the location is just as important. And sometimes it's, I, I know it's really hard to write things to explain your whole process because there's certain things that we leave out naturally because we just do it for so long that we just kind of overlook some of these things that other people might not be as aware of, but that's why that stood out. And, you know, at first I was like, man, why'd they pick that one, off the other ones? And I looked at them, and I was like, oh, well, that's exactly why. Um, and so, you know, that was also interesting, um, based on location. So something else to just, you know, call to that, but yeah, a great article on process and exactly, um, you know, why that was a thing. And then also that they did call out some other things that I thought were good. Um, as far as, well, what's their validation pieces? They did kind of talk, what was the file even signed? No, it wasn't. That's what the, the three means in the image file sign. So there's already some additional things that they say, yeah, you know, typically when you find something, you know, there's a couple other things in the data that you may not realize is there to just do it, some additional validations really quick. Um, and then, you know, you can see how you can kind of put all that together and try to build a rough detection to catch things on the fly that mimic this activity. But it's always good to have these processes and these types of hunts, I think, so that yeah, when you have those easy possible detections or matches to just you know let other people identify and look at them right away versus what are things that might change or be different in the environment that I need to be able to pick up on. These processes are perfect for that.
1: Absolutely. And uh, like you mentioned, it's not just a check the box. It's not like, all right, so we check this, then we check this, then oh, okay, false positive. It, it takes some deep thinking to actually sit there and question what's in your environment does it make sense um and all you know so once you're done it's you know it's not just hey we found this badness it's like hey, here's why it's bad. Uh, we know that we have these services running but this one was the the most obscure or most you know it anomalous
0: bring, It brings a lot of information that you know I know management cares about that we find bad things and we stop bad. But the amount of information in doing a hunt in this type of process is how much you actually learn, right? So, you know, that's, that's hard to quantify, but that is some of the value, I think, in threat hunting, so.
1: Yeah, it like speeds up that tribal knowledge gap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that's hard. Like you said, that's a hard metric, right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. All right enough for that. Great article, yeah. though. Um, yeah. What'd you got next? Yeah, the next one I was going to pull up and
0: it's nothing that was necessarily um, relevant as far as a recent thing. Um it was just more my process. You know, I mentioned my first find when we talked about the, you know, HR serve DLL web shell um, and they used the PA exec. And you'll know, just naturally I'm like, ah, PA exec? Like I know I've seen that, but I'm not really I don't really remember what it was, but I was like, "Well, what is that?" And I came across this Red Canary article and it was actually published in, um, last year, July. So, you know, has, it's been around for at least a little bit, but they basically are calling out PS exec and saying, what are some unique things when it comes to hunting or looking for this activity? And then what are some of the clones? Cause that's what PA exec kind of is. is it's like a clone of PS exec. Cause a lot of people have kind of recreated the tool and the behaviors of this tool to do other things. And so they walk through and they, um, mentioned rimcom, which is another open source one, PA exec that they mentioned, which is, has the same functions as, as brimcom and PS exec. And it's, you know, primarily intended for use with the power admin server management console or solution. Um, so it was created for that, but you can use independent of that. And then there's CS exec, which is the C sharp implementation of PS execs functionality. But the one thing they called out here was like okay so there's all these tools um that lets you kind of laterally move and or execute um, things laterally so you know very common in a lot of attacks and the first thing they fun or focus on are the pipes and how they always use consistently named pipes in a lot of these tools but because they're open source pipe names can change but they do a lot of pipe communication so they're saying you know when, when thinking about PS exec and the other clone-like tools, if you have availability to look at pipe activity, um, that's something that uh, you should look at for any obscurely named pipes or even just have things that match the same pipes as a lot of these tools. Because if no one's going to recompile these tools or try to circumvent that, a lot of people just use these right out of the box and you can catch them based on just the name pipes alone. Um, so it's a good thing to build detections around if you don't have them. But then they also were talking about some other things about name pipes. It's good to be aware of. And they mentioned that, you know, a lot of, um, system processes that are standard, especially in a domain use name pipes for communication in general. And there's some common ones and they're saying that, you know, there's a lot of things you can look at if you were just to do the same process we just talked about with services, but if you were to group based on name pipes and look for rare name pipes, and then, you know, a lot of times, depending on where your data is coming from, from Sysmon. You'll even know what executables are talking to pipes. So that can really help you understand what the purpose of those are. But when you're also doing this type of assessment, you know, we're talking about PS exec and their, you know, clone like tools to PS exec. Cobalt strike and Metasploit also use pipes named pipes for lateral movement. So if you have an approach or process, like we previously discussed for pipes, um, it might be easier to find these things as well. Um, and then one of the things they brought up, which I thought was another interesting approach to thinking about the data is there are other tools that use pipes because they, um, they use similar functionality that's native to the environment. And that's like bloodhound and Sharpound, where they basically help enumerate the environment. But what they end up doing is using the excessive amounts of legitimate name pipes to enumerate and do things with and that was another um interesting way to look at the data well what if you were to say okay we're looking for rare name pipes that's something we can do it's easy manageable what if we were to look for hey do we have a process that is abusing using a commonly known name pipe because that too could be very suspicious um especially you know a lot of times, you know, just like PS exec and some of these, you can inject um, into process or metasploit, you know, and cobalt, Strike. Right? You can inject into legitimate processes. Uh, you can do the same thing with bloodhound and sharphound as well to execute them. And obviously, if you see a process that never calls on a name pipe that's common, it is now calling on it a lot, highly suspicious, right? So so things you can do with name pipes. The other thing they, they kind of called out, which I see a lot of detections like this, Um, And they call it the binary metadata uh, or the binary internal name. And what that really is associated with is um, if you ever looked, especially at Sysmon data, some EDR data will have it too, where they'll have like the original file name versus the file name. Well, when something is compiled, you know, that part of that being compiled, it will have the internal original name as part of the data, the metadata. And then you can change the name after that, but it still maintains that original name. So they're saying something you can look for if people are trying to circumvent some of the naming conventions where people look for that. You can look at the original name of files for the specific, um, PS exec and clones. Um, and see if it's different from the name of the file. If there's a conflict there and it's okay to build detections around that. That's not too costly. Um. And, you know, it just basically says, yeah, well, we'll catch those really low level things. So I thought it was a a good note, but also, you know, it's a call out that there's other metadata to look at to try to help with this. But I really liked, uh, one, talking about a multitude of tools that are very effective when it comes to attacks and things that we've seen uh, countless times and an approach to kind of preemptively start to understand your environment and deal with it. Uh, so I thought it was really good. And it was a good follow on I thought to your article when he when you talked about the process for hunting for services. So what did you think?
1: So ironically, um, and not to just be a fact checker here, but this was originally published in twenty eighteen. So Oh
0: yeah, I, reason, I think you're right. And it was updated. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And the reason I just bring it up is just it's more of a look how long Yeah. This is or look how relevant this still is. Right? Like we are still looking at these tools that are being commonly used. And like you said, they use them off the shelf because it takes a lot more time to create something on your own than mm-hmm. just take it off. Um and I was thinking about, you know, PS Exec that uh, usage and going through, you know, I I've I've messed with some sys internals in, in the past just simply because they are a suite of Tools to use for both, you know, defenders and D for whatever the case may be. Um, Yeah, they're great. But one of the things that you have to do um, is that you have to accept an end user license. And now this is specific to PS exec. Um, I don't know about PS exec uh, or sorry, PA exec.
0: Yeah, I Uh, think there's a UH for those. Yeah.
1: Which which makes sense because they're probably not legitimate. but the idea is there; it leaves traces, especially PS Exec. So if they are using PS exec in your environment, there are multiple places that you can hunt for. Um, they said that once you uh, remote to a machine, a copy or an executable named exe is created on that remote machine. And that's what actually provides the um, the callbacks or the ability to communicate with the machine. Um, so you have you know the service on the remote, but then you have the actual tool um, that you're using, and then um, it will create the service as well named psexe svc. So that exists, um, or that exists somewhere that you can search for. And finally, if if this was a system internals, or if you've never used psexec in your environment or on the machine that you're testing with. It stores the uh, end user license agreement acceptance in um, in a registry key, so you can look for whenever a uh, the registry key was modified to reflect that. I um, mean, simply by doing that, you could possibly say, "Well, you know what? I don't, I don't think we use these tools in our environment very much or at all." Um, and if that's the case, that brings up uh, you know, like a bigger question of what's going on here i mean it could be an easy win say hey this is not legitimate activity let's you know let's check this out but another great article it once again stands the test of time uh to say hey look (laughs) these tools are still being used and will be continued to uh, be used uh, by malicious actors
0: So, what do you have for us next?
1: Uh, next, to, uh, this is actually by the Talos Intel team uh, from Cisco. Um, yeah, the Cisco Talos. Sorry, the Cisco Talos team. It's called uh, "Deep Dive into Phobos Ransomware," recently deployed by Eight Base Group. Um, now, they do a wonderful job here, um, tearing apart with an idea. Mm. Um, I- I'm not going to sit here and read that word for word. Um, first of all, that's not my gig. <laughs> Second, uh, I'm looking for at the usual, you know, I'm looking for what are the tactics, techniques, uh, capabilities, you name it. What what would this look like um, if it had executed in our environment? And it says some of the capabilities of the tool itself is to gain persistence, uh, conduct discovery type activity, it kills processes. Um, uh, that may you know it says. The kills process that may hold target files open. So if it is targeting something and that file is being used currently, um, that would prevent the file from being encrypted. Which I thought was a um, as malicious as it is. I thought that was pretty clever and creative because they had that forethought of, well, you know what, like if something is holding this open or something is using the file actively. What are we going to do about it? And Unfortunately, they figured out the answer, uh, which was kill the process real quick. Um, but that exists. Um, then, of course, because it's ransomware, they like to disable the system recovery, uh, backup shadow copies when it was firewalls, you name it. But finally, um, they had, or they mentioned, a UAC bypass technique using a, a .NET profile or DLL Loading uh, vulnerability. Um, so the UAC is the um, User Account Control um, in Windows, and I know we've um, mentioned it before um, because this key pops up. But it's a way. Uh, it's a tactic that adversaries can use to gain uh, elevated privileges. Um, so if you run a certain uh, or if you code something specifically, uh, there's sorry. There's multiple ways to run this. So you could use DLLs um, to call to uh, call something to be a little more uh, or a higher elevated uh, process. Uh, you could modify a registry key that will allow you to run at an elevated privilege as well. Um, but this is just one of the techniques they use, where they um, it, it actually targeted the Comp Management um, so by uh, messing with the load process of that, that DLL that it works for, um, it, it allowed the adversaries to gain elevator privileges. Uh, but basically, a DLL is dropped to a user-writable folder, and the environment variables are modified to make the .NET profile load uh, the file in an elevator process. So this gives them that power. That gives them what they need to start encrypting the files. Uh, and it's just a really well... Um, really well-written article. Uh, There's a lot of technical details here. Um, Like I said, there's a lot of technical details that involve um, the the code itself. Um, But you can still pick out those those tactics, techniques, and procedures that they use. Uh, And that are really common with ransomware uh, in in general. What was your take?
0: Yeah, so I was looking at a, a lot of the Characteristics of some of the execution, um, and one uh, that I liked that kind of stood out that you don't see a lot was where MNC.exe, which is the Microsoft Management Console, it's what spawned the weird child process. Which usually the Microsoft Management Console it is used to open different administrative tools on the system that likely sit in system 32 or syswild 64. So already you know you can probably make uh, some sort of, you know, unnatural process being open from MS, MM, it's, it's hard for me to say MM backwards, MMC.exe. <laughs> um, and that, that'd that be a good indication of some suspicious activity. Um, the other was, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, we still see it and I, I always bring it up, but, you know, startup folder and run keys, they apparently leverage that as well. So it's just, you know, people constantly talk about how sophisticated some attacks get, but they still are, you know, their left and right limits on what attackers can do on a system is the system itself. And that's just an easy way to run things, so people do it still. It's just just a thing. Um, And then I did notice in the UAC bypass that you mentioned, in this specific attack, they they called out that that existed in the code, but they didn't see it actually execute because they didn't need it. So I I thought that was interesting to have, you know, uh, basically a, a malware package that has kind of different branches depending on what you need to achieve on what it will do. And they said that that UAC bypass is still relevant, um, but it just didn't take that branch because they had already enough privileges. I guess it did some privilege check probably to say, do you have enough privileges to perform X? All right, you do. Don't worry about the UAC kind of thing. Um, So that was was also-
1: concerning too, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, right. It's like, well, then, then they, that means if there's a few different ways, like if you're really good at maybe hardening your system or, you know, you think you're good, well, now these attacks can kind of be multifaceted as far as, well, if you're going to stop one approach. We have three others. We can try, you know, something like that. Um, and then the, the, the one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, which didn't make a lot of sense from a sophistication standpoint was, they encrypted all the files with AES-256 encryption, but they use a different key for each file, which is a good technique if you're trying to protect against brute forcing, right? Because that means if you brute force one and you're able to get the key, because you know sometimes you know what's in the file, or if you have a copy of the file uh, when it's in an uh, unencrypted state somewhere, you might be able to leverage that information to help break the encryption um, in a faster form because you know what it should be, um, but then they append that key encrypted by an RSA uh, 1024 um, hardcoded public key at the end of each file, and the, what was weird to me was the encryption to brute force AES-256 tw- is a lot more work than it is to brute force or break RSA 1024, so they basically secured the files with better encryption than what they secured the keys that are part of the file, um, itself. Uh, and then the other weird thing was they didn't use different RSA private keys based on their targets because they were able to find, um, samples on virus total to date, back, date back to 2019 that uses the same public RSA key, which means the same private key is what you'd use to unlock all that, um, which I thought was weird. Like, is that a misstep or laziness or just understanding? Like the approach sounds cool. because, like, oh, we're doing double encryption and using different keys, like how much better this is. But in reality, it's actually worse because you just neuter your AES-256 encryption and you also have lingering keys that if someone were to break one, that means everything encrypted since 2019 by this malware you could go theoretically black and decrypt um so that i thought was really interesting and and they kind of called some of that out too but that that approach at first i was like oh wow they're really going above and beyond and they actually kind of shot themselves in the foot in my opinion from a a technical perspective but yeah so that was a really good write-up by you know talus always does great stuff but those are some details i thought were um important to mention
1: that's pretty interesting
0: All right, so I believe um, the last one I was going to bring up from an article perspective was a, a Cyware a news article, and it was called the Lazarus Group Exploit Magic Line 4 X flaw to launch supply chain attacks. And right out of the gate when I started digging into this, it just irritated me. They call it a supply chain attack because... Uh, effectively what they did was match the client for an X didn't know what it was it looks like it's some sort of security software that you could install like, like endpoint software that's supposed to have a lot of security functions um, there was a flaw meaning a vulnerability that you could then exploit um, to do what you need to do so um, already it's like well that's just any like any other normal software I wouldn't call that supply chain now the the effects of hitting something that's widely used kind of has the same effect as if you attacked the supply chain. But, you know, a supply chain attack to me means you have somehow compromised some part of the supply chain. Like, for instance, the 3CX stuff that they did, that Lazarus Group was responsible for, they actually were able to put their malicious payload into the process of where it was being legitimately um, shared um and distributed so therefore it's a supply chain attack because now legitimate supply chains are giving out their malware um and, and how you go to retrieve what you think is legitimate is actually Ill- illegitimate that to me is supply chain attack this was just an exploited vulnerability that happened to have a widespread effect and it was in uh it looks like the korean region right i mean lazarus is associated with north korea so i think it was south korea was primarily the biggest target here um so that being said that, that was the thing. But then I was, I was looking into it more and I kind of stumbled across a, another report and I just kind of wanted to, to talk about it just because, it, so you're an untraditional way of getting information. And I pulled up a, an on lab. I'm, I'm trying to say it correctly. Cause I, I think that there's a pronunciation way to say that. But they basically are referencing um, this vulnerability and this attack. And the report is dubbed Lazarus, OP, Dream of Magic. Um, And the whole report is in Korean. And I went to not great lengths to try to translate it. But I was like, you know what? It's 38 pages. Let me just look through here. and Like, literally, everything is pretty much... Korean, but then I started to understand some of the syntax of what directories kind of look like and some of the, the symbols we use versus the symbols that, that would appear. And then it, it was, it just dawned on me, everything that's important that's technical is all in English, right? And I thought, you know, this is probably a good place to highlight that sometimes when you're digging into things, just because something is in the wrong language, but if it's like a Windows attack, there's going to be Windows elements that are just windows and just the way they are. They're going to be in English. Um, So it was very easy to then pull out every single English relevant technical piece of information. So from looking at that, I was able to see, oh, okay, so the vulnerability associated with this magic line for an X, uh, was cause it to execute the UPN P, you know, C-O-N-T-E-X-E, which is basically a web call out to then do other things. And then that was the main executable that, you know, did a lot of CMD uh, activity. And there were some other utilities and tools that I wasn't necessarily familiar with. But I could see the parent-child relationships, the form of executions. They had the diagrams that kind of pointed things to where they were going. And then there was a lot of common use of DLL sideloading, um, which is like, okay, so now we know DLL sideloading is associated with the capabilities of Lazarus. Lazarus, And then we can, they even listed out what DLLs to what execute executables, they were actually sideloading. So from a capability perspective, if I'm curious about Lazarus and I, and I want to defend against DLL sideloading, I know to look at these specific executables that exist on Windows and then you know look for any kind of DLL drops or things to that nature to, to discover some of this. So I actually learned a lot from a 38-page uh, Korean language re- report. Um, and so there's, there's value there. Now there's probably some things I'm not able to pull out, you know, to be fair, but I have more to work from than some of the other reports I was pulling up because they were more like news headline stories, um, which, you know, there's a good chance that maybe they found this report and they didn't know how to report on it, but just knowing that, you know, taking the time to looking at some of these things. And then there was also something else that I thought was interesting and that was a tool, like, I've never seen. So, we know a lot of adversaries use um, off the shelf common basic tools, right? And in this case, they used a tool called fastcopy.exe. I haven't looked into exactly what it does, but I could see screenshots of it, and everything. And it looks like an easy way to basically copy any kind of files um, and information based on, you know, you can even put like regex to look for specific file types or names in the files or things like that, to pull down and push to some sort of destination. Um, So just knowing that now I know of a tool that would probably be very non-standard to, you know, me not being in South Korea um, that I wouldn't expect to see. And so I don't know, like if I were to look for this tool, it's already an easy off the shelf tool that I just say, I should probably not see in my environment. all learned from looking at, uh, at a report that initially I was like, there is no way I am going to be able to use this information. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's, like I said, sometimes what I like to talk about when we talk uh, about the articles in this weekly segment is not just the information in the articles, but like the approach to, Hey, how we read these things and how we pivot to other articles or how we, you know, pull up more information, because I think that process in itself is just as important um, of getting a good threat hunt off the ground or good defensive uh, approaches to some of these attacks so so yeah i learned some tools i learned you know what was the the big um way they were trying to execute and and take advantage of this vulnerability and also learned that it really wasn't a supply chain attack like they just dis- discussed um so you also got to be careful of the terminology used in some reports to make sure they actually line up because that's probably the my biggest frustration in our industry is the improper use of terminology to that creates mass confusion and then communication just kind of gets bare but but yeah so what do you think from the stuff i th- threw your way
1: so i learned that microsoft possibly has created a universal language which you know we've been the world's been looking for nonstop, but if yeah. you can look at multiple reports <laughs> that are written or have the same stuff going on, then that's great. Now, um, but no, it. I, what I was surprised of um, was not really, uh, like you said. Or sorry, total side tangent. The you mentioned that looking at the news reports first and then leading to other articles I mean having a good bookmark section of those is really really helpful um, mm-hmm. because if you know the hacker news or the bleeding computers or, or things like that um, they always or normally they will reference their materials in our article so it's a big it's an easy win there um, which you know from there uh, going to the or the next article is easier and then finding it and finding out what you know what were they really talking about what were they trying to talk about um especially if the first one isn't that um technical uh you know it's it's kind of like the executive summary right um going back to north korea um i agree um with your statement of it wasn't a um supply chain attack because quite frankly i was Digging, and I couldn't find the answers. answers. Like I was right. Like, right the same problem?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It, that I mean, not, not that not that we should shame them or anything. You know, it was a it was a great article, great great lead to an investigation research. But I was just trying to figure out. I was like, well, which which supply vendor got popped? Um, but that's beside the point. Um, I was surprised that uh, oh that Onlab. They're a good, um, they're a good organization as well. Uh, I've read multiple uh, articles by them. Uh, they're definitely over uh, in the Asian uh, side of things, but they they still, which I like because they provide details that we don't normally see. Right, we're focused on U.S. Um, you know, our our critical infrastructure. Who's you know who's targeting our stuff uh, and so on. They provide reports that's going on the whole other side of the world. Um, and of course, you know we got North Korea. Looking at cryptocurrency, I think that I was surprised that that wasn't a big feature in this one. Right. Um, but you know, you think of North Korea and you automatically think um, they're heavily sanctioned there's not a lot of trade um <laughs> being done with them so how do they get their money you know ransomware cryptocurrency hijacking uh and so on but i really do um i really do look forward to finding that 38 page report uh, because those are the reports the reports that i love um And I like how you said you learned a bit from the 38th page report. But yeah, no, I I look forward to it. Um, Thanks for the great article. Yeah.
0: So I think with that, that concludes the weekly segment. So I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Through Hunting podcast. Uh, We look forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 27th, 2023.
1: Thanks for joining everyone and happy hunting.
0: Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security. Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and
1: follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.